And uh, just keep your Bibles open if you want to follow along. We're going to look over those particular passages of Scripture. First Samuel chapter 18, and I'd invite you to pull out those message notes and just follow along. First Samuel chapter 18. And can we pray one more time? Lord, I'm asking that you'd help me to share this message where the rubber meets the road this particular Sunday in July of 2013. Where's time gone? Thank you, Lord, for your blessings in our lives. In Jesus Christ's name we pray again. Amen. I have read about a story a while back. This has been around for a number of years, but do you remember the particular story about a mother of eight by the name of Edith? There was a mother of eight by the name of Edith, and she lived in Darlington, Maryland. And on a particular Saturday morning, she went to the next-door neighbor's house. She was at the next-door neighbor's house, and she came back to her own house, and she crept on her porch, and things were just too quiet. Eight children, and it was very, very quiet. And she peered through the screen door, and she noticed five of her youngest children concentrating on something. They were concentrating on something very intently. And she got a little bit closer, and she noticed right in the middle of the huddle of these five youngest children were five baby skunks. Five baby skunks. And she yelled at the top of her lungs, Quick, children, run! And each kid grabbed a skunk and ran. (laughs) That's a true story. It's a true story. (laughs) Some days you wonder, you know, you just wonder. And, and it's true, you know, we have so many problems and often we try to work on our problems and our problems just multiply. Our problems just multiply. And did you know that sometimes, however, the toughest trials come after a victory? The toughest trials come after a victory. They come after a mountaintop experience. They come after you win the the trophy. They come after you win the ribbons. Some of the most difficult trials in life come after a so-called victory. After a victory. And this was young David's experience. As we saw a couple weeks ago, reviewing, David defeated the huge 9 feet, 9 inch tall Goliath. It was a major victory. David accomplished what no other Israelite person, King Saul himself, could not have accomplished. It was an epic thing that what David accomplished with God's help. He defeated this huge giant. He was not a battle-seasoned warrior. He had never probably carried a sword in his entire life up to that particular time. And he had accomplished a million-to-one odds. And instantly, I mean over that night, David became a national hero. He became a national hero. He became an American idol. He became one of those typical people that you, you would think of like a Hollywood rock star, a Hollywood movie star. I mean, he went from a zero to a hero. He became a national figure overnight. He was thrust into the limelight. And Saul made good on his promise, and he enriched this young man with all kinds of riches. He and his family could no longer have to pay taxes. And he even gave his daughter's hand, Michael, to him in marriage. David was at the pinnacle of popularity. And uh, David became, again, an overnight success. Not only only, uh, all these things happened to him, but also, in addition to those things, he became a personal bodyguard to, to King Saul. And he also became a commander in his army. And I want you to notice 
verse 5 of chapter 18 one more time with me. Verse 5. Notice, whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it what? He did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. One more time, skip over to verses 14 and 15 of chapter 18. Notice, in everything he did, what? He had great success because the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw how successful he was, he became afraid of him. The word success is mentioned a number of times. That is an understatement. Again, he is the most popular figure in the whole kingdom at this particular time. The people love David. The soldiers love David. The, the king's daughter, Michael, loved David. The servants loved David. At first, Saul loved David. Even the king's son, Jonathan, the, the, the heir apparent to the throne, loved David. The soldiers, Saul's children, the servants, the people, all of these people were enamored with the person called David who had killed Goliath. But there was especially... Uh, there was an especially uh, a special group of individuals who were especially, uh, you might want to say, enamored with David. The women of Israel, because they begin to dance and they begin to sing. Look at verse 7 with me. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now this is a little ditty, you might want to say. This is a little uh, phrase of a song. And this song began to spread all over the place. And it went from the women and went from the children and it went all over the countryside and finally it made it to the ears of Saul. Those of you who grew up in the 50s and the, the 60s and you saw the movie Mary Poppins, you still remember the phrase supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. And it was one of those kinds of things where this Little ditty went all over the place. Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his ten thousands. And all of a sudden, however, there's one person in the kingdom that does not like it. David is being praised in song and he's being exalted above the king. And Saul heard this ditty and the word tells us that he instantly did not like it and he became jealous of David. Let's look specifically at Saul's reaction in verses 8 and 9. Notice, Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. In Hebrew, it means it really got him right in the gut. It really affected him. Um, They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time onward, Saul kept a jealous eye toward David. He did a slow burn. His stomach turned over, you might want to say. The fear and the worry intensified, and paranoia gripped his mind. Hey, I've got a problem on my hand. I've not only got a giant killer, but I've got a king killer that's coming up. From that day onward, Saul's jealousy and hatred toward David grew. And as a result, seemingly overnight, David is going to go from the mountaintop, he's going to go from the, from the hero worship, to the worst experience in his young life that nobody would want to go through. He went from the pinnacle of adulation and popularity to a hunted, harmless fugitive on the run. A few years ago, in Houston, California, which is in the Central Valley of California, which is the San Joaquin Valley area where they grow a lot of 
um, produce and a lot of fruit and et cetera, et cetera. Out in an orchard uh, field, there was an old farmhouse. And at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, it was invaded by a home invasion crew, you might want to say, of young adults, young men. And they drove down this road at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and their intent was to invade this house and to capture the people that was inside of the house. It didn't happen that way. It just happened that the man was awake early in the morning, and as soon as he saw this car coming down, he felt it was suspicious, and he took out his pistol, and these young men tried to break into the house. They broke through the front door, and there was the man there, and he shot two of the would-be attackers. 911 was called, and eventually uh, one was wounded, and he lived, and another young man died. And the reason why, according to the Modesto B, that they did that is because they heard a rumor. They heard a rumor that that house was filled full of um, a large stash of marijuana was at the house. And it's amazing to me how false ideas and, and rumors and half-truths and false stories can get planted in someone's brain. King, thought, King Saul really believed and thought that David was after his throne. Nothing could be further from, from the truth. Here David is. He is a teenager. He's been anointed the new king. Nobody knows about it but David and his immediate family and the prophet. And David is there to serve the king. He has no design on the particular throne at that time. He's rallying no people to his cause. He is playing his lyre. He's playing his harp. Saul is a madman. He's possessed by a demonic spirit. And he's there to minister to him. And yet Saul begins to have this paranoia and this fear and this jealousy. And he really believes that David is intent on taking his throne at this particular time. And the scripture says, look at it with me in verses 10 through 11. The next day an evil spirit from God came forcibly upon Saul. That's how they interpreted it. We've talked about that before. God allowed it to happen. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. And Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall, the context, I'll kill this young upstart, I'll murder him. But David eluded him twice. If you like to circle, circle the word twice right there. And we read, if you can believe it, the same thing happens in chapter 19, verses 9 through 10. But this time, Scripture concludes, and David fled and escaped the night. Not once, not twice, but three times that we know of, Saul threw a spear at David, trying to pin him against the wall, trying to kill him. And David finally gets the idea in his mind, this guy is trying to kill me. And he runs, and he flees, and he gets out of there. I'll pin David to the wall. And here, here's David, trying to lighten his load, trying to help him, trying to minister to him, hour after hour, singing songs. And God's Spirit is upon David, and he has compassion on his king. And this king, in turn is jealous, envious, and in a rage tries to kill him. 
three times. And David flees. And he fled and escaped into the night. David goes again from the pinnacle, the pinnacle, the hero worship of success down to hiding as a fugitive and and finally fully understands his situation. The king wants him dead and he's attempted uh, to take his life more than once. And this leads again to a very, very painful chapter in David's life. Mark the words, David fled and escaped because you'll hear these words again and again and again. David fled and escaped. Now, David experienced a number of losses that I want to talk about this morning. Specifically, David lost his position. David lost his job. You see, David had been brought into the King Saul's family as a personal bodyguard to King Saul and as a military leader. And he lost his job. He lost his position. He had proven himself faithful by killing Goliath leading in a number of military victories, and now it's all gone in the flash of the spear. Never again would he serve in Saul's army. He has lost his position. He's lost his job. Ever been fired from a job, ever lose a job, ever been uh, falsely accused, ever had a, a downturn in the economy and lost your job. I was watching a 60 Minutes news special a number of years ago, and it highlighted, it showed a room full of uh White-collar workers in the San Francisco Bay Area, every single one of them had a bachelor's degree. Many of them had a master's degree, and some of them had their Ph.D. degrees. They had all made a six-figure income, and now they were living off of their benefits, and they had been without work for one year, two years, some of them for three years, and they had gone through all of their life savings. And in addition to that, Many of them were trying to make it by collecting bottles and newspapers, and one particular lady was living out of her van. She was living out of her van. David lost his job. He, lo- he lost his position. And the second loss is, is that he lost his pedigreed wife. He lost his pedigreed wife. She was stripped away from him. Did you know that according to what we read, Saul pursued David right into his home, right into his home where he was with Michael, his wife, and the night before David was to be killed, Michael helped him escape in a creative way. Did you notice? Chapter 19, look at it with me, verses 12 and 13. But Michael warned him, second part of verse 11, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat hair at the head. This is the first mention of a toupee in the Bible, okay? And then when Saul sent the men to capture David, Michael said, he is ill. So Saul was pursuing him with his men right into his household. His wife covers up for him, and David takes off. But later on, when, he's, when she's asked by her father, why did you do this? She lies, and she, she says that David tried to threaten her, and David tried to kill her if she didn't help. Looking out for her own interests, Michael betrayed David, never offering one word in his defense, and later we see that she doesn't have anything to do with him out of selfishness, self-centeredness. He not only lost his position and his job, but he also lost his pedigreed wife. Number three, David's personal friend, his best friend in the whole world, 
is stripped away from him. We read that David flees to Jonathan. Jonathan, again, is his closest friend in the whole world. And in these particular verses, we can see the rawness of David's emotional state. Look at chapter 20, verse 1. Then David fled from Noath and Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? Have I wronged your father that he's trying to take my life? Never! Never, Jonathan replied, you aren't going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without confiding me. Why would he hide this from me? It, it's not so. And David said later, I'm only one breath away from death. I'm only one step away from death because of your father, Jonathan. I'm only one step away between me and death. And he lost his best friend because it was too um, it was too difficult. There were too many people at risk for Jonathan and David to continue to meet because Saul was in hot pursuit of him. He said, "I'm only a hairbreadth away from death." And you know, some veterans can identify with this. I was reading one time about a World War II veteran who said he was in a European theater someplace and one particular night bombs began to go on around him. He was in a foxhole with his friends and his best friend in the whole world died on his right and his next best friend died on his left and all around him people were crying and dying in the middle of the night and when he got out of that foxhole the next morning his hair had turned Absolutely white. A hair breasts away from death. From the pinnacle to the fugitive. Lost his position, lost his job, lost his pedigreed wife, lost his personal friend. And I want you to notice the fourth thing that we read in Scripture that David loses. David also loses his personhood, his personhood, who he is as a person is stripped away. We read that David flees to, to Gath. Isn't that where Goliath was from? Yes, he was. He fleed to his enemy's territory. Where else is he going to go? He's got a madman, the king, with all of his army. He's after David. He's pursuing David. David's going from this place to this place to this place to this place. He's being hounded as a fugitive. And where else can David go? He goes to the enemy territory. He goes to the he goes to the Washington D.C. of the Philistines, which is Gath. He goes to Gath. And he arrives there, and David's running from Saul, and he goes to the enemy's territory. Now look at chapter 21, verse 11 with me. Look at verse, uh, verse 11, chapter 21. And uh, the servants of Achish, Achish is the king of Goth, said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David is It's even spread to his enemies. Everybody's singing this song. This is all his latest thousand. David is latest ten thousands. You know, whatever it may be. Everybody's singing this song, and uh, everybody isn't stupid. Everybody recognizes David, but you won't believe what he does next. Look at verses twelve and thirteen. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Goth. So he feigned insanity in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman. 
making marks on the door of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Another translation says, he disguised his sanity before and acted insanely, scribbled on the door and let saliva dribble, run down his beard. We're talking about a young man full of self-esteem who has victory after victory after victory. He's defeated the, the, the lions and the bear. He's defeated this giant. He is at the peak of adulation, and now he's being hounded and pursued, and he has lost all of his self-worth and self-esteem, you might want to say. And he's acting like a madman in order to protect himself. And the leader of God says in verses 14 and 15, Look at the man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? And this is so funny. <laughs> Many of you could say this about your workplace. I am so short. Am I so short of madmen that you bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? He's crazy. He's a lunatic. What have I got to do with this? What do I want to do with this David character? He's nothing to me. He's lost everything. He's lost his self-respect. He's lost his best friend. He's lost his pedigreed wife. He's lost his position. He's lost his job. He has lost everything, humanly speaking. Loss. Oh, loss, loss, loss. Loss, real or imagined, is something that we all have in life. One, what are you going to do? What do you do? We know how Job's wife responded. You, you might as well curse God and die. Throw in the towel. Give up. What do we do in the face of loss? Job, position, Self-esteem, wife, husband, David lost it all. I want to conclude with some final thoughts this morning. Number one, do realize, I know you know it, I'm preaching to the choir, but you need to be reminded of it. Do realize the temporary, transitory nature of life. Do realize the temporary, transitory nature of life. We sing that song, we're pilgrims along this pathway, and we hold, um, we have shallow tent pegs. We have shallow tent pegs. At any time, our job, our family members, our health, our finances, our self-esteem can be taken from us. Life is very temporary and transitory and can be stripped away. Now, we're not masochists and we don't look, we don't look at the cup half empty. We look at the cup half full. We're not masochists, but we're biblical realists. It happened to David. It happened to Job. It happened to Paul. It happened to Jesus. And it happens to people around us that we love and are near dear to us and happens to us at times. The second thought I want to share with you this morning, do appreciate, do relish, 
what you do have and don't take anything for granted. It's very simple, but you need to be reminded of it. Relish what you do have and don't take anything for granted. Don't take anything for granted. Relish what you have. If this was your last, if this was your last summer, if this was your last fall, if this was your last Christmas, if this was your last week of life, wouldn't you do things just a little bit different? Wouldn't you do things just a little bit different? Wouldn't you have more of the eternal perspective? Wouldn't you be more loving and kind? And wouldn't you be wanting to hug everybody and be in everybody's life? And wouldn't you want to be able to be able to be gracious and forgiving and not have any bitterness and not have any lack of forgiveness? Wouldn't you want to do that in your life? Wouldn't you want that? Relish and appreciate what you do have. And number three, do remember. Remember that the Lord is our ultimate source of encouragement. The Lord is our ultimate source of encouragement. Not our job, not the money we make, not the homes that we have, not even our best friends and family members as, as, as much as we need them in our life. But the bottom line is that the Lord is our ultimate source of encouragement and strength. Everything eventually will be stripped away. We all will die eventually. It's not if, but it's when. Isaiah 41.10, listen to what it says. Don't fear, the Lord says, for I am with you. Don't look anxiously about, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. We all know about, we've probably seen it a thousand times, It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. George Bailey, George Bailey is the manager, the president of a broken down savings and loan in Bedford Falls. And because of Uncle Billy and because of what Uncle Billy did, he's accused of misappropriating thousands of dollars. And George Bailey doesn't know what to do. He finds himself on the edge of town. And he's contemplating suicide. He's at the river there. And he doesn't know if he's going to take his own life or not. But he's contemplating it. Remember when all of a sudden Clarence Peabody, second class, an angel, jumps in the water, intervenes, and basically ends up giving George Bailey the eternal perspective. It's the eternal perspective. He gave him the eternal perspective. He said, what would your life have been like if you had not lived? And Mary, who is such a vivacious part of George Bailey's life, who's such a wonderful wife and person, she would have been an old spinster, bitter and shriveled up if George Bailey had not lived. And then his brother, who he saved from a childhood accident, would not have lived. He would have died as a child. And later he became a World War II hero. And all those people that could buy homes because of that broken down savings alone would not have their homes. Instead, Bedford Falls would have been a honky-tonk place of casinos and strip places and 
all that kind of lifestyle. And George is giving the eternal perspective. And you remember the end. All his friends and family are gathered there and thousands and thousands, hundreds of dollars is being being collected to help offset this money that has uh, been misappropriated. And Clarence leaves George a little note inside of a copy of Huckleberry Finn, the book. And in it, it basically says, George, life, my paraphrase, life is rich when you have friends. Life is rich when you have friends. What is it going to take for us to remember the eternal perspective? We get so busy with our lives. We get so wrapped up in everyday work that we lose out on the eternal perspective. Life is transitory. Count your blessings today. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. And the Lord will use you and bless you where you're at. Let's pray together.